This is On the Edge, a podcast series from the Creative Coalition, featuring conversations with an edge and chats with personalities from the world of entertainment. Now, here's your host, Creative Coalition CEO, Robin Bronk. Welcome listeners to On the Edge. Today's guest is Emmy Award nominee, Chandra Wilson, Dr. Miranda Bailey to millions from the iconic and record-breaking series, Grey's Anatomy, which was just renewed for its 19th season. Let's welcome Chandra to the edge. It's my pleasure to say hey to Chandra Wilson today. Hi. Hey, 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 to my new friend of the Creative Coalition. You did such a spectacularly moving PSA uh, for us. So Bless your heart Thank for that. You. Thank you. The, this was the PSA we did to encourage vaccines for COVID. And you you did it with a, a real in real life nurse. And you were yes. so kind after a very long PSA filming to do a shout out to the nurse in real life who says you were so inspirational in, in her career. I hope so. that she loves seeing all three of us on that same PSA. Oh. Exactly. That's I think really she cool. has it on continuous play. I mean, you are her her <laughs> heroes. So it was it was quite an act of love. And thank you on behalf of Alex, it's our real life nurse. Very very cool. So speaking of that show, are you in your hundredth season? <laughs> it feels like it sometimes, and then sometimes it feels like the second. It's 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 very strange the way time um, goes. What is that in TV? land, you know, to be able to, to have that experience and to be able to grow a character from, you know, what they were 18 seasons ago in real time, you know, to, to now, I think that's been one of the big joy things that I've gotten out of it is uh, for, you know, people like we were just talking about who can see a character have a dream of something and then take the steps towards getting it and then attain that, you know, being chief of surgery um, in about the time that it would normally take. So that's, that's been really cool. Well, I have so many things to pack into my time with you, but I want to hear first about Chandra. Yes. Where, you grew up in Texas? Yes. Houston, born and raised. Do you feel like a Texan? Are you a Texan at heart? I absolutely am in, in every way possible. I always feel like I'm, you know, a transplant to other pl- places, but you know, my roots and and everything about who I am is uh, because I grew up in Houston. I grew up in Houston in the 70s. I grew up right after desegregation in schools. Growing up in a Black neighborhood, I went to a magnet elementary school that bust in the white kids to my school. So I always had, you know, interracial classrooms and, you know, that was never an issue. I, I didn't understand, though, that they were being brought to the school and that, wow. that was different because usually it was the other way around. It wasn't until middle school that I realized, oh, that that was that was different. That wasn't what everybody else's experience was. It was a big deal. We were doing, you know, music and all of the performing arts from kindergarten. You know, we were learning how to play instruments. I'd started off with the violin and we had p- piano lessons and we always did our plays. Um, so the arts was fully integrated into our curriculum. Um, who knew that that was not what everybody had? <laughs> you know, so it's not till later when these things started getting taken away um, that I realized, wow, I, I, 
you know, as far as upbringings go, I was kind of okay. Um, race did race did hit me young, um, as far as you know, being being called the N word or being put in a situation where I was the only you know black child in the room or the only black child in the dance ensemble. But there was always some angel around that was really glad that I was there and made all those words and all those inferences and all, it, it, it gave them no value. So I learned early, like five years old, that the N-word has no value because, you know, I still won We Windy Model of the Year, 1976. <laughs> What's We Windy? It was, um, so that, that we're talking about charm school and the charm school was attached to the Montgomery Wards department store. Oh, Montgomery uh, Ward. Yes, so I went to Montgomery Wards for my charm school lessons on Saturday and it culminated in a pageant um, where we, you know, modeled clothes from Montgomery Wards. And uh, so this uh, pageant, I thought that there was one other black girl in my charm class, but I was uh, behind the curtain, you know, before it was my turn to go up and do my routine. And uh, a little girl, a little white girl, let me know that I wasn't going to win. And I was like, wow, how you know already? She said, because you're a nigga. <gasps> I was like, oh, okay. And I don't think I knew what that was at the time. And I went and I did my little routine or whatever. Oh, wait, wait, what was your routine? Uh, you know, you walk out model. It was a little pantsuit, um, did a little back and forth, did a little thing, did a little lunge, did a little. And I went to leave and they were like, wait, 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 we're not done. We're not done. So I remember I had to stand at the edge of the stage for a while until they finished, you know, describing everything. So I got down, I went and I talked to my mom and I said, mom, so-and-so said that I wasn't going to win because I was a nigga. And she said, no, you're not going to win because that whole little lunch section in the middle that we've been practicing, you didn't do that. That's why you had to wait because the routine wasn't long enough. You forgot the lunch. <laughs> just missed the other thing. It was just it was missed. Uh, but I did win. I did the best I could with what I did. Um, so that's what I say that the, the word, it, it had no meaning, um, you know, to me. so it, it wasn't something even growing up in the South that that was something to hold me back. You know, it was like a whatever. And so I was fortunate in a way to get that early, to, to not have to carry um, a word, you know, with me like an albatross. We were about the only Jewish family in my town mm -hmm. in South Carolina. And mm -hmm. for me, you always remembered it. You maybe yeah. didn't talk about it all the time. Yeah. But, you know, we were the Jewish family. Yeah. So it becomes, what does different mean, right? And mm -hmm. what does it mean for your life? Or, or is that the blessing? Is that the blessing on your life? Um, you know, that's up to some other person in history to figure out what that was for me. But it, it was just one of the, the early things that I knew shouldn't be a hindrance um, in life, right? With getting into college, with, um, uh, with deciding to be an actor, with um, uh, auditions that I probably wasn't right for, but was able to be submitted for. There, there was no reason not to try. There was no reason not to, you know, throw my hat in the ring for whatever it is that I wanted to do. There, there really was nothing. The only thing that could stop me is if I didn't try. What was the edgiest, what was the biggest risk you took then? Was it going to NYU? Uh, so I guess the story that comes to mind was when I was in 
and, and this is good problems. I learned later on, it's really good problems. Uh, I was a sophomore at NYU and I was doing a production of Pippin and I was playing the leading player. Um, and that sophomore year, I finally got a manager and I started going out auditioning. Wait, this was um, at NYU? You got a manager? NYU. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you are really good stuff. I mean, I knew you were, but that's good. really impressive. You know, we were encouraged for the most part not to work, you know, outside, just try to focus on school. Um, But, you know, whatever. (laughs) I'm sure I can get my toe wet. It's okay. Well, I got this great opportunity to audition for Joseph Papp at the Public Theater um, my sophomore year for a play called The Forbidden City. And um, I didn't get it, but they wanted me to be the understudy. And... But, you know, my manager and, and the agent that had submitted me, they were so excited. You're going to get to work with Joe Papp and you're going to be at the public theater and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, shoot. But I'm, you know, I'm leading player over here in Pippin. And they're like, well, that's just for school. Don't worry about that. But I was like, <laughs> but I'm leading player. And the agent couldn't understand where there was an issue. So we were in. Because you had some morality. You had. Oh, I don't know what those words are at 20, 19. I, I just remember being so frustrated by this. We were in tech, you know, and, and the show was going to be two weeks. And I was talking to my director about it. And he said, child, march yourself over to that public theater. Go talk to Joseph Papp. You tell him you are right across the street here at NYU. Can y'all just hold on for two weeks and you'll be right there. Did you do that? Absolutely did, but um, I couldn't get past casting. And I went to Rosemary Tishner, and I was like, I want to see Joe. I want to see Joe. What are you like, nineteen then, twenty? I want to see Joe. I don't know what. And she thought it was really funny. That is hilarious. She said, "But baby, what if something happens, like during that first week, and you have to go on, but you're, you know, on stage." Uh, you know, on the main stage at NYU, you wouldn't be available. But but it's okay. Thank you. Thank you for coming over. <laughs> Long story short, I felt fine about it because I wasn't going to leave, you know, my show in the lurch because, you know, this opportunity was here and Joe and whatever. Well, anyway, so the agent never wanted to see me ever again. And my manager, <laughs> she was like, you have integrity, Chandra. It's fine. You know, whatever. And the play went great. And ser- literally the, the day before we closed, uh, Rosemary called me back and she said, are you ready now? <gasps> and I was like, yeah. You're amazing. The girl who was in the role got a part on the Cosby show. She needed to leave. So the understudy went on and I was able to go in. Wow, that is so great. You just, I just like envision you marching yourself over. Is You don't even ask for Mr. Pap, Joe. <laughs> Joe. So I've had people all my life like instill in me, girl, you're fine. Go ahead, just be you and go ahead on and, and, you know, do you. Don't worry about names. Don't worry about labels. Don't worry about it. Just go on ahead and, and, and go. The only thing, the only thing that will stop you is if you don't go. If you don't go, certainly you have no shot. But just go ahead on and go. I love that. I love that. So talk a little bit about your Grey's Anatomy audition. Yeah. Like you uh, haven't talked about it before, but I want to know about it. You want to know? <laughs> I do. Um, so it was a regular, you know, New York audition. And this was Rosalie Joseph, who was at ABC, had seen me for many, you know, years, uh, over the years for different things. The The role was for a short white blonde female. They're rigid um, and they're kind of like your mom, maybe. <laughs> 
was like, I'm going to go in with my best that. Um, and that was enough to get me to LA for my studio and my network auditions. Um, I went into the studio audition and um, met with the, the director. We had like a private session. And I believe at the other end of the conference table was Betsy Beers and Shonda Rhimes, who I had no clue who they were. And they didn't really like introduce themselves like, you know, with the producers or with the this, they were like other people in the room. <laughs> so I'm, you know, working with the director. I did that. And then we um, found out that I was gonna get called to go into network. So um, I went to Universal Studios with my two daughters that I had brought. I had like about a five hour break. Mm -hmm. So I got ready to go to the network audition. And the note that I got from my agent, and I'm not sure where it came from, casting or what have you, was make sure you take command of the room. I was like, wow. So that translated to me that as soon as I walked through the door, the people in the theater needed to hear my feet. <laughs> to hear my heels coming chugging down that were theater. you wearing tap shoes <laughs> right should have been um needed to hear it all the way and i walked walked in in the part ready to say the words you to say go um and then the audition ended and um they said okay bye have a nice flight you know back to new york and i was like oh wow that was it the whole have a nice flight thing Walking down the stairs at Disney, um, the other actress who uh, had auditioned right before me was also doing a, a play in New York and they all came out and were like, hey, we're trying to get tickets. It was like a whole thing. And I was like, oh, okay. I believe it was the next day or maybe two days later, they told me that I booked it. Wow. Um, Since then, you've directed a number of episodes as well. Yes. Yes, I have. And was directing always a passion? No, I never envisioned myself as a series, a dramatic series television director, um, maybe for the theater, because that was my upbringing and that's what I knew. And, you know, that was my comfort zone. But it was at some point in season four when my producer, Rob Korn, came to me and said, you know, you need to consider directing. You should do this. I think you'd be good at this. And I didn't know what it was. I, I was the actor that never knew where the cameras were. I showed up and did my play every single time, I, you know, with no knowledge of camera. I was on my mark and what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, it was never about, oh, it's your coverage. So do, it's like, I, I didn't know what that was. I just knew how to do the play every time. So I had to start paying attention to where the cameras were and why, and going over to the village and looking at the way the shots were set up and why. Um, I was the person that only watched the final product when everybody else saw it on Sunday night, you know, at that time. That was taking a risk. Absolutely. Right? And um, plus that you were doing it with the people that you have to work with every day and look in the face again. Yeah, but, it, but, but I had a, a nice chunk of time. My director of photography gave me a book of the five C's of cinematography that he was like, learn this, know this, um, and then day one, and then you'll be ready. Um, so uh, I, I studied, you know, all through season four. I was supposed to direct in season five, but Bailey's um, storylines got kind of heavy in season five. So we pushed to season six. So I finally got my shot in, in season six. And the episode was a Derek Shepard centric episode that was really kind of 
you know, a, a set apart from things that we had done in the past. He provided the voiceover in the episode. So I was kind of allowed some liberty to not have to look exactly like Grey's Anatomy, which was good. And so I did it and I was like, yay, that was it. That was my shot. And then a month later, um, my uh, executive producer came back to me and said, I need you to do another one. And I, I was like, that time I asked why. He said, because you're good at it. And because wow. we had a, and we need you to cover. <laughs> so ever since then, I've directed to a season. I'm a, a longtime fan of the show. And in the show, you all have tackled so many taboo issues and, hmm. um, and brought to light. And I think you, you were at one of the Creative Coalition events where we talk about the power of the entertainment industry to open the hmm. doors and the windows to issues that we don't want to talk about. And I was actually going right. to just talk to you and get your opinion. One of the issues that we're tackling now, it's, an, it's interesting because it affects four out of 10 viewers. It's, it's, it's obesity. Mm-hmm. It's the last of the silent diseases. Mm-hmm. It's what we're trying to do again through the Creative Coalition and through our platforms is to take the stigma away from it, similar to what you know we help do with mental illness. And so I think that there was an episode early on where you, you talked about it in, in probably a way that it hadn't been talked about before. Because I was look, we, we, you know, we've been doing research on, 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 on episodics that have tackled it, and very few episodics have. I don't know if you remember this episode where you did talk about obesity, and, and it was about a, a patient who had obesity. But you know, knowing what you do and how to, how to bring issues to the forefront, what does it take? to get to, you know, I'm sure people are pitching diseases to you and to get Mm. focused all the time. If you were going to take this issue of obesity, why would the doctors in your hospital care about it? What would it take? And and really interesting um, based on last year and, and being purposeful about wanting to affect healthcare going Mm -hmm. forward. Um, If you tap back to the Obama administration where the whole purpose of the um, Affordable Care Act was to stop people early enough, right, to, to change the habits early enough so that later on we're not dealing so much with the heart disease, with the, with the diabetes, with obesity, because we've changed the habits um, early on and we've gotten medical intervention early on um, in order to, to help us later on. So that would definitely be a reason to tackle the issue because I know that we have, um, we, we have to embrace body positive because that affects our mental health <laughs> when we can't, you know what I mean? It's like, we, we won't be able to attack anything with our bodies if our minds aren't in a great place. So I think the, the order of things ends up being mental health first. And then now what are we putting in our bodies? Yeah, it's funny. It's a really funny thing about obesity in specific is that it's not in lieu of body positivity. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's something at the Creative Coalition, we're aware of it now. It's this gateway to 72 other diseases mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. and coming from the South, I don't know if you can, re- I can relate coming from the South where it's like, you know, if you fry your sneaker and, you know, you know, more, the more you, the better mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's this, mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever ran into it, but you know, that mentality of the South, it's all about being big and but that's what we are we're we're a size 14 16 18 society like that's 
normal, right? The things that you see on TV, things in the magazines, that's something people aspire to, something people work at trying to get to. But just, you know, folks on the regular, that, you know, that's where we're living. And that's because of the access that we have to what we have, which is um, fast food, um, you know, like eating real quick. It's not about like going home and, and, you know, making dinner as a family, making lunch as a family, sitting down and taking that and sitting at the table. You know, it's just a, a different way that we look at food and food has other uses besides just nutrition. Oh yeah, it's, it's social. It's it is family. social. Everything involves food. Hey, let's get together. Hey, let's meet at this restaurant. Like it's all around food. So we, you know, are a society full of people that are used to being full, even if it's full on stuff that's not good for you. So we, you know, ultimately you you do want to attack nutrition, but if, if you're not in the right place to hear that, then you're going to think, oh, you're looking at how I look and you're criticizing how I look and then telling me how I'm supposed to eat based on that. And then, then you, you get nowhere. You get absolutely yeah, it's, nowhere. It's so, it's kind of funny. It's where with mental illness, it used to be, you know, well, if you just smile, then you'll feel better. And we know <laughs> that's absurd. Or even epilepsy a hundred years ago, if you were a better person and you had willpower, you wouldn't have seen you wouldn't. Yeah. You know? And so it's so science has told us that obesity is a disease that, you know, one, and it's, it's, and it's interesting because, you know, we are looking at shows like Grays to tackle it because it's something that, that it's the shame and blame, which just, you know, we hope that in a couple of years that will be a, as absurd as mm-hmm. mental illness being shame and blame. So did mm-hmm. you, I don't know if you remember this particular episode, but did you get any feedback from it? Did you, it was, I think in 2010 or 2011. It was very early on. I do remember that. I remember the girl. I remember talking about shame. It was, it was way before I was like plugged in. It was before social media, if yeah. I remember right. Yeah. So, you know, people would have had to send letters to us and it was way before I was plugged in, you know, on that level to what the thinking was uh, from the viewers, from what they were seeing. But one thing about Grays is, and, and until this last season, as far as social issues or moral issues are, are, are concerned, we, and, and even racial issues, as opposed to telling our audiences what they should think or how they should feel or what they should think is important, we just would show them, right? We would show them these characters, show them these situations, show them this medical, you know, and usually the patient would say whatever their perspective was about that. And it was left up to the audience then to decide if that made any sense at all or or if, if that had value or if that was right. When I was doing the research on it, I, I had forgotten about that episode, but then when I saw it, I remembered it. I'm sure you get, you know, oh, talk about this issue, talk about that issue. You have your own issues that you'd probably, you know, like to bring to the mm-hmm, forefront. Mm-hmm. We know that this a couple seconds on TV can change the face of something. So this, it's funny, obesity, it was the biggest epidemic before the pandemic, yet it's not addressed. I think your episode right. 
This was an extremely obese patient. And I remember we were um, going surgically um, to try to remove some layers, if I remember right. And that, and that that was going to be incredibly dangerous. And it was something that she may not uh, survive um, because of the blood vessels and not being able to tell the difference between, you know, what was, you know, something that we could cut and, and, and otherwise. And that she, um, had just kind of put it on one of the doctors that they were um, judging her because she allowed herself to get into that position. Oh, interesting. Um, but there was no judgment on it. You know, we, our jobs as surgeons, which we would always try to come back to, is to look at it from a medical standpoint and look at it from a surgical standpoint. The, the, the other end of that, that, that's the work that the patient has to do. That's the work that your a social worker has to do. That's the work that a therapist has to do. It, 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 at this point, it doesn't do any good to blame. It's like, this is where we are. So now what do we do? And even though that's the way we kind of attack things in the past, because of COVID, this was one of the seasons where then all bets were off. Call it what it is. Is it racism? Is it disenfranchisement? Is it, is it a, a, a lack of equity? Whatever it is, call the thing by name because it doesn't make sense not to do it anymore. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the going forward without being the preachers, you know, or the, or the police of integrity that it's really important to call things by name. That's right. interesting, especially in this case, because <laughs> we talk about big boned and we talk about, you know, whatever. And, and this word obesity, it's, you know, we whisper it. It's, it's, because it makes it seem like something's wrong as yeah. opposed to, no, when you look at something medically, when you get to this number, that's considered obese. <laughs> right. It doesn't make sense because you feel fine, um, you know, but it's about having to learn what are the consequences for. And it, and it, you know, it comes down to food, but there's so many factors that go along with food, emotional factors, environmental factors, um, which, which just makes it huge and something that, you know, so many people are, are suffering with w without even knowing it. You know, because if it's your norm, like you were saying, we're from the South, if everybody in the family is big boned and you big boned too, then what's the problem? <laughs> you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you, I feel like I'm talking to the most humane and comforting doctor. How did you train to be Miranda Bailey? Did you shadow real doctors? We did. We did. And but specifically, uh, for grays, we are surgical rotation. And that's something that we put, that, we, that, that has precedence, that's in the front. And the reason for that is there's a different mentality, even though surgeons may not want to say so, that involves being the cutters. Um, you, uh, what, I, what I learned from the people that I followed was that it doesn't, it's not about the person that's on the table. It's not about their color, their ethnicity, uh, what they did last Tuesday, uh, who they cursed out, or how many, um, you know, favors that they've done for the community. It's about that organ. And you walk into that space, that sterile space that's been prepared for you to go in and make the repair of that organ. That's it. 
with no bias. No, no emotional involvement. And a lot of patients are like, well, can I meet my surgeon? Can, can you talk to me before? Can and, and so when, when some surgeons are like, no, I don't want to meet you before, or I'll come check in on you later, like forming no personal relationship, that's in order to be able to do the job. And it becomes a really competitive type of industry as far as uh, the, the opportunities that you have to cut and make a thing right and learn and teach somebody, each one teach one. Um, that's really what that mentality was about. So for me, the Nazi kind of persona was really to keep everybody away from me so that I could get ahead, so that I could go on my path uh, of success that I had planned out for myself without you know, getting emotionally involved with any of my coworkers and especially with patients rules that I broke all the time as a human being, but that was certainly- It sounds like it was that struggle between brilliant surgeon and compassionate human. Right, right, exactly. Um, and I, I, as, as surgeons, a lot of times they try to focus less on that compassion part because you, you're gonna lose people. Um, it, it's just a, a part of the deal. And it, that will, can, will, you know, break you um, after a while. So if you're not looking at those situations, like what went wrong? What can I learn? How can I do this better? I bet you I'll never make that mistake again. That, that becomes your edge um, in a way. So with experience, you can kind of learn to marry the two, right? Where is that combat? You know that the patient really needs to meet you before you go cut them. You know, you can, you can kind of figure out where that is, but I, I completely understand that school of thought. So when you were shadowing and, and getting into character, how close did you get to real surgery? Closer than I ever thought. I was always expecting to be watching from a gallery somewhere. Just upset. no, I was on the floor. I the what was the, that like? The one that stands out the most to me is um, five month old baby girl with a hole in her heart. Um, so I was there to, from the time she was just on the table, you know, waiting, and people were getting the room together, and I'm like, okay. It's, at some point, they're going to send me out. No, no. I got gowned right there on the floor. And then they draped her and got her ready and then opened the field so that, you know, the, the, the attendant could come in and do what he needed to do. And I mean, it was like, can you see? And I'm like, how did you hold it together? How did you? Because you didn't want to. You just completely fascinating to me. It was fascinating watching the perfusion machine hooked up to the baby's heart and then taking over the job of the heart so that the the field could stay clean I was amazed at how clean our insides were you know and that the, and then this this heart is just sitting here in perfect form you know beating and ready but it, it, it needs a repair and I was able to look over and, and appreciate everyone's job in the room because everybody knew what they were in the room for you're not in panic all the time it's not trauma all the time sometimes it's you know we've, we've got this sterile environment and we're going to do this repair and we're going to close this baby girl up so she can have a life and it was I thought it was beautiful it was so beautiful I think that speaks a lot to you too, that you see the, the, the beauty and the in science and uh, around you to, to really appreciate the adventure of it. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And, and I, the, I also watched a cesarean um, section 
Well, I've had three and I've never watched. Let me tell you, it's fascinating. There are all these layers that you cut through. You cut the skin. And then you know, I remember my husband saying, Yes, that was the most barbaric thing I've ever seen. I don't think it's changed since Caesar's time. (laughs) They cut through all the layers and then finally get to the uterus and then slit that layer open, get the poor baby out, then take out all the other crap that has to come out and then put all of those pieces back together again. Some are sewn, some are stapled, you know, just to put those layers back together. (laughs) Together good, you know, over time. But I mean, it's tremendous what happens to the body and you're not aware of it. You feel stuff, you feel pressure, kind of, but it's it's kind of a mystery because the curtain is right there. Well, yeah, all the mystery was taken away being on the other side. So when you've had to deal with doctors and personal life or family life, do they treat you like you're a doctor? Because, you know, a lot of people have trouble making the difference. I'm, I'm usually always there as a parent, right? When mm-hmm. raising three kids, that as a parent, I'm, I'm always there. And I did, I have one daughter that has a, a, a chronic pain um, illness with cyclic vomiting and mitochondrial disease. And we were in the presence of doctors all the time. And I was really cognizant of making sure that I'm just, the parent, like I, I don't know any of this. I feel like you need to be able to give them all the information that they need. What, what you saw, um, when did things start? You know, what, what does this look like? But in no way do I finish anybody's sentences. My everything on my end is a question because make don't be confused. I don't know <laughs> this. So you, you, you've had this spectacular career and and in this groundbreaking television show what's next for you do you think about it wow I um ever since I graduated college and I was doing a play off Broadway at the Manetta Lane Theater and I was in the union actors equity and I had my little card and I had my medical insurance I had made it that was it that's what I went to school for that's what my degree was all about Um, And everything after that was the icing on the cake, especially um, I moved to New York in order to do Broadway. And I had the good fortune of being able to participate in four Broadway productions so far. You know, those were the things that were on my list. So everything after this, um, being in a show that was this successful, um, becoming a, a, a dramatic series television director, icing on the cake. So when you were doing Chicago, yes, so it was in between some great seasons. During, yeah, the um, this after season nine, between season eight and season nine, or between season nine and season ten, one of those two. Well, how <laughs> yeah. was it switching over to theater? Oh, it was cool because uh, you know I had months to to get ready. So basically, like my last month of grades, I was. Um, you know, learning the dialogue. I went, you know, straight into rehearsal. I think I had like three weeks of rehearsal. And then I performed for either four to, to six weeks I was on. Um, and it was a blast. It, w- it was an absolute blast. It was getting my my taste of Broadway again because it was, you know, time because it had been a minute. Um, but the show just stands up through all kinds Love of time. That. It just never gets old. And it was just a joy and a pleasure to go in and contribute to the thing that 
is already there. You know, it's like, it didn't need me. So if I'm coming in, I, I want to be able to add and, you know, help people play. And so you've directed television. Are you looking to direct theater at all? So I always thought that I would uh, be a theater director. Um, and that, you know, con conceptually, that's how I thought. Um, I used to love to, you know, take a play and figure out how do I stand this up on its feet? Um, so ultimately, yeah, it, I, I would love the space to be able to figure out, um, you know, when it's right, when to do that, where to do that. Um, over the, the quarantine time for the ensemble theater in Houston, um, I did like a Zoom uh, and that was kind of cool. I was, it was sort of a, a hybrid of the live theater and then like directing the Zoom camera, like, you know, when do you go uh -huh. on? But yeah, I mean, theater, that's my home. That's where my heart is. Um, so, you know, I have to see what opportunity shows up for that. I do. I do also want to just say, so you're a working mom. We both yes, have yes. three kids. My kids are in their twenties now. What's your secret to how you kept it together? Uh, I wake up every day with the intention of doing things the way we planned, um, knowing that you have to leave room for things not to go as planned. Um, and then you eat in there somewhere. And then you get to the end of the day and you go, we did it. Oh my, that is so mine. Mine is we got through today. That's all I got. Like nothing else is yeah, you nothing got else through today. depend on. Yeah. So let's go back to that Montgomery Ward pageant. We Wendy model of the year. I'm so excited. I'm getting to talk to the We Wendy model of the year. So when that awful girl came up to you and told you you weren't going to win, now, knowing everything you do now, what would you tell that six-year-old? Well, see, that's the thing is I, she wasn't an awful girl. She was her. And I know that she had one of those moms <laughs> that, you know, was the center of the crowd. And I have a, you know, vivid memory of her mom out in the audience standing with, you know, other moms. And I was like, okay, well, that's where she got it from. Later, I was able to say, oh, that's where she got it from. But at the time, she was just the other kid in my charm school mm -hmm. class. There wasn't anything awful about her. And she was saying what she had heard. Um, it, it didn't come from her. You know, that that's something that had to be taught. The, the biggest thing I could say to her was actually what happened. It, it, was, it wasn't about what I said, it's about what I showed. So she got to learn at six that what her mom taught her was wrong. Well, thanks for allowing me to just take a jump into your life. Thanks so much for joining us, Chandra. It was great to be with you. And I, for one, am looking forward to season 19 of Grey's Anatomy. Come back to the edge with us next time when we do a sit down with the producer of This Is Us, Ken Olin. I look forward to seeing you then. You've been listening to On the Edge, a podcast series from the Creative Coalition, hosted by Creative Coalition CEO Robin Bronk. For more information on how you can protect funding for the arts and harness the power of the arts to promote social good, visit us at thecreativecoalition.org.